morning, everyone. Glad you're all here on this daylight saving time morning. <laughs> a little bit earlier than maybe you'd like, but <laughs> um, if you want to stand with me, we'll begin this morning with the call to worship taken from Psalm 102. And in this psalm, we're reminded that God is not only the creator of all things, but will remain forever, that even though heaven and earth will pass away, that our Lord will not. So I'll read the bold section if you will read after me the non-bold. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. If you want to remain standing, we'll sing hymn number 253, Come Thou Found.
confession of sin this morning comes from Exodus chapter 20. We come to the ninth commandment. We've been going through each of the Ten Commandments each week looking at the law of God. And this commandment says this. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We see here the sanctity of the truth. That these laws are not arbitrary. They come from the very nature of God. And God himself is truth. And so for something to be a lie is to go against the very nature of God. And sometimes I try to teach my daughters, why is lying bad? (laughs) It's not just bad because I say it's bad. It's because God is truth. And to lie is to say something about God that is not true. And so we need to remember each week that we are guilty of lying, whether it's a white lie or maybe we just flatter someone or maybe we try to deceive someone, that we're all guilty of, of breaking this law. And so each week we come together to confess our sins, not just this commandment that we break, but all of God's law, and we're reminded of that. So if you would um, pray with me this prayer of confession. Heavenly Father, you are high and lifted up, the very essence of truth itself. You have created us in your image and called us to protect and preserve the truth. And yet, in our sin, we have lied against our neighbor and ultimately against you. Whether in slander or deception, in lying or in flattery, we have broken your holy law and not loved our neighbor in this way. Forgive us for the sake of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to uphold the sanctity of the truth in all that we do. Amen. Going to remain standing and we'll sing hymn number 224 before the throne. Holy 
confessing of our sins, at looking at the parts of us that we don't like, <laughs> but each week we get to come and be assured of God's grace and pardon. And we see this in Galatians 4, one of my favorite verses. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we see here that God has done what we could not <laughs> And this is good news. So let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your, for your law, that it is good and holy and right. And yet when we look at it, we see not our perfection, but our shortcomings, our failings, our iniquity. And yet in your grace and mercy, you have not left us to our sins and our own devices, but you've sent your Son who was born under the law for us and for our salvation, that we might have a way made for us, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of your only Son. Help us to this morning be assured that for those that have faith in Christ, that we can be assured that our pardon is sure and that the way of salvation has been made not by our working, but by the working of another. Help us to believe this this morning. And we also pray for the churches around the world that are suffering persecution and all the different trials and tribulations that are going on. We pray that you would strengthen your church and that you would grow your church, Lord, during this unforeseen time, but not unforeseen for you. Um, we also pray for Megan, um, a dear sister who's struggling with cancer right now. We pray that you would heal her, that you would watch over her and her family, and that you would um, strengthen her as she struggles with leukemia. We uh, pray for all of us here today that we would, might be strengthened by your word and spirit, and that we would look to Christ this morning. We thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated this morning. Finally, we'll look at our confession of faith, where we do this every week. We come and we confess some of the great truths that have been passed down throughout the ages together. And this one comes from an Orthodox Catechism, 
which a catechism is just a question and answer form of teaching. And this is the first question in the catechism, and it comes right to the heart of the issue, I think. The question is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Will you read with me the answer? That I am not my own, but belong both body and soul in life and death unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, all things must work together for my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me willing and ready that from now on I may live for him. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning again, everyone. Hope you're all doing well. And for those of you that were here last week, it was a great honor and privilege to hear uh, Pastor Bruce Hollister speak. Um, hopefully you guys were encouraged. Um, just to have someone from a totally different denomination um, come and speak to us, encourage us, uh, it's pretty, pretty amazing. So, that, so thank you to him for coming and doing that. So this morning, we're going to pick up our study where we left off, <laughs> from the book of Romans. And so if you want to turn with me this morning, we'll be in Romans chapter 8. We'll be in Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 25. And so far, we're about halfway through Romans 8. And so far, we've seen this great theme over the whole chapter. What is Paul trying to prove in this epistle, in this letter to the Romans? He's trying to prove that for the believer, we have a sure and certain salvation. That there is hope. That there is a surety that for the one that believes in Jesus Christ, our salvation is certain and that it's full. And that we've seen this in a couple different ways. We've seen that the believer has been delivered from the law. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. That God has done what the law could not. He sent his son. So we saw this great truth. The believer has been delivered from the law. We also saw that the believer has been given the spirit of life. That it's not just special Christians that have the spirit. It's not just those that have ecstatic experiences. It's all Christians have the spirit of God. The spirit of life. And that they've been given a new heart with new desires. We saw that in the second week. And then recently we looked at this idea of that for the believer, they've not just been justified by God, made right with him. They've also been sanctified and adopted into God's family. That those who were not God's people have now been brought into the family of God by grace alone. And so this whole chapter, hopefully, as we've seen, has been a great assurance to the believer that whatever trials or struggles that we've been going through, that the Apostle Paul is trying to comfort us, to assure us that there's great hope, that the salvation that was promised in the Old Testament has come into fulfillment in the person and work of Christ, and that our salvation is sure. So hopefully that's been borne out over the last couple of weeks. And so this morning, we're going to talk about 
this idea. That we've seen in the last couple weeks that the believer's been delivered from the penalty of their sin. Right? The punishment that was due. The believer's been delivered from the power of sin. They're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. But the question remains is that, what about the remaining effects of sin? What about the remaining effects of sin? What do I mean? Things like suffering, persecution, sickness, death, illness, all these things. The believer's been delivered from the penalty of their sin, from the power of sin, but what about the effects of sin, from the fall, the curse, all these things? And so Paul's going to look at that, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. But ultimately, we're going to see that even though the, some effects of sin still remain, that there is hope in our suffering, that there is hope for the believer, and that we look forward to a new creation. So if you want to look with me, we'll begin at verse 18, and we'll read through 25. This is the word of the Lord. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that by the power of your spirit this morning, you would give us the eyes of faith that we might have your word illumined to us, that we would see the great truths of the scriptures, that we would stand under them and on them, and that we would see your great work and the great hope that the Christian has even amongst suffering, and that we look forward ultimately to not this world, but the world to come. Would you be with us this morning? In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So some new material this morning, a little bit different than maybe some of the stuff we've talked about. So maybe it's good if we step back a little bit this morning and ask this question. This is a good question to think about. What is the story of Scripture? If you're on an elevator with someone, how would you tell them the story of Scripture in 30 seconds? I found this helpful. I got told to me a long time ago. Four words. Maybe five. <laughs> Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. Creation, fall, redemption, and then new creation. What do these words mean? <laughs> Some of them are pretty self-explanatory, right? 
creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see this in Genesis 1, that God, in six days, made the heavens and the earth, and it was good. And at the top of this creation is man, created in the image of God, told to subdue the earth and work it and keep it. I teach, um, we go through these kids' catechism questions with our kids sometimes. And the first question is, who made you? And the answer is, God. And the second question is, what else did God make? And the answer is, everything. (laughs) And then the next question is, why did God make you in all things? And the answer the catechism says is, for his own glory. And so we see that even in those three questions, and even in the scriptures, that everything was created by God, ex nihilo, by the word of his power, and it was all for his glory. So from nothing came everything, and it was all good, and man was set in God's creation to work it and keep it. So this is creation. But then what happens? Genesis 3, the fall. Adam breaks the covenant with God. He eats the tree that he's not supposed to. He, this is not just a disregarding of God. It's a breaking of God's covenant. And so God is faithful. God is true, as we, as we saw this morning. He's not going to lie. So he said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. So we see these covenant curses poured out not only on Adam, but on creation. That creation is cursed. That Adam will try to till the ground and work it, but it's only going to bring up thorns and thistles. That there will be pain and childbearing and all these things. And so there's other things that accompany this curse, this, this fall that we call it. This is loss of communion with God. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. Death comes upon creation, not only for the animal life, but also for man. And so creation is fallen, and then God puts a flaming sword over the garden, saying, do not come in, right? Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. So this is creation and fall. But even within Genesis 3, we've talked about this before, there's a great redemption that God promises, that this seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So we see this promise of redemption even in the Old Testament. It's not just in the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament. And we see all these prophets and priests and kings. We see sacrifices and temples. What's the point of all this stuff? It's to point to this coming one, this Christ, who will save his people from his sins. And that's what God does. Through Christ in the Gospels, he accomplishes redemption through Christ. So that's creation, fall, redemption. And then this final category, and what we'll focus on mostly this morning, is new creation. New creation that God promises that he will make all things new. That what Adam failed to do in the garden, Christ has done and will bring it to completion or consummation. We could use that sort of language. So why do I say all this? Kendall, what are you talking about? We, uh, us in this room, we live in this weird time where we are kind of in between the ages, if you want to use that sort of language, where we have partaken of redemption. We are, those that have believed in Christ, we have these benefits that we've talked about, justification, sanctification, adoption, but yet we have not been glorified. We have not been made perfect as we will be in the new creation. And so this is what Paul is going to struggle with this morning. And 
try to give us hope amongst this. So if you can think about it, what have we talked about so far in Romans 8? Believers have the Spirit of God indwelling them, and yet they still suffer. They still suffer. Believers have the Spirit, but still suffer. We've been justified and adopted, but not yet glorified. Right? We've been justified, but not yet glorified. We've been given new hearts with new desires, and yet our bodies waste away. They fail us. We get older. We get sick. All these things. And so there's this tension between this great work that God has wrought in our hearts through the gospel, and yet outwardly we still deal with suffering and sin and the effects of the fall. And so Paul is going to get right to that. And as we've said, the whole chapter of Romans 8 is trying to give us assurance, give us hope that God's salvation is full and complete. And we'll see that hopefully this morning, that we can have hope in our suffering and ultimately we await a new heavens and a new earth. So that'll sort of be the outline for us this morning. So if you want to look with me at verse 18, we'll see this hope in our suffering. That last time we talked about this great act of adoption, that we who were not a people of God have now been brought near. We've been adopted into God's family. But this is sort of a two-sided truth, and we didn't talk about it a lot last time, and so we're, we're going to press into that this morning. That most people, even maybe unbelievers, might like this idea of being in God's family. You know, if you ask someone, do you want to be a child of God? They might say, yeah, sure, that sounds, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But we see that being a child of God also comes with other things. And sometimes we don't like those other things. So if you want to look with me, one verse before verse 18, Paul says this, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Sounds pretty great, right? Provided we suffer with him provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. That this two-sided nature of being adopted into God's family, it has many great benefits. We talked about all the privileges that come with being children of God, but Paul says that there's also this aspect of suffering as a Christian. There's this idea of suffering as a Christian. And so what, what does the scripture have to say about this? Well, that being a Christian does not remove suffering from us. It actually promises suffering. And that might sound kind of weird, but this is what the scriptures bear out. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. He goes on to say in Philippians that it has not only been granted to us to believe but also to suffer. Also to suffer. It's sort of an interesting phrase. <laughs> it's been granted to you, not only to believe, but to suffer. That's profound, and I don't think we deal with that enough. And so that suffering is not something that's removed from the Christian life. It's actually promised. And this shouldn't surprise us, because what was the life of Christ? He was the great suffering servant from Isaiah that came and suffered the punishment that we deserved. 
And what do we see in the, gospel, in the Gospels? Christ's suffering. What do we see in the Acts in the early church? What did Pastor Bruce talk about last week? Christians imprisoned, persecuted for their faith, suffering. And so this shouldn't surprise us that suffering is a part of the Christian life. And so even though it shouldn't surprise us, that doesn't make it easy. That doesn't make suffering easy. Suffering is hard. (laughs) That's the nature of suffering. And so Paul is going to give us hope in the midst of our suffering. And he says this in verse 18, this great truth that he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That we are in this life, in this world, that we are sojourners. That we are exiles on this earth. That this earth is not our home. And so we will be persecuted. We will suffer greatly. For being Christians and even just the general effects of the fall. (laughs) Many of us know this. And so not only that, but he says it's not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. What's he saying? It's incomparable. The sufferings that we face as Christians are not worth comparing. What's another thing that's not worth comparing? Uh, My basketball skills to Michael Jordan's. (laughs) They're not worth comparing because they're in a totally different category, right? My chess skills to the 10-time world champion Magnus Carlsen, okay? He's the best. My wife's laughing. They're not worth comparing. Our sufferings in this life are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so Paul is trying to give us a heavenly vision of the of what the Christian has hoped for, that even though we face sufferings in this life, that we have a great hope, a great glory. And so we have to ask this question, what is this glory? What is this glory that Paul's talking about that is going to be revealed to us? And we see this answered in the next section. And the answer that Paul gives, essentially, this glory is the new creation. Is the new creation. So that brings us to our second point this morning. This idea of the new creation. And we see this in verses 19 through 23. So Paul here sort of personifies creation. He gives human attributes to nature. He says things like, creation waits with eager longing. Creation doesn't have a patience to (laughs) be impatient with. But he's giving it human qualities. And he's saying, creation is waiting for something. He later says that creation is groaning. What's it groaning for? He says in verse 18, it's longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. For what? For the new creation. For the new creation. That just as me and you, even as believers, are subject to the effects of the fall, even so... Creation is subject to those effects, right? Just like me and you suffer, creation itself has fallen. It's not just mankind. It is all of creation has suffered the curse from the fall. Has suffered the curse from the fall. And we see this in verse 20. Paul says this, For the creation was subjected to futility. That's fun to say. Futility. Not willingly 
but because of him who subjected it. That creation is fallen, that it's cursed, that it's waiting and groaning as we are. Why? Because it's been subjected. It's been fallen. It's groaning. And we see this in our created order. We're dealing with a worldwide plague right now. These are all effects of the fall, whether it's tornadoes or natural disasters, sickness, disease. All these things are effects of the fall. And so creation itself is groaning inwardly. And so it's not just that we are groaning, but creation itself is groaning. But as we've seen in Romans chapter 8, God promises that he will redeem us. We saw in verse 17 that those that believe in Christ will be one day glorified. And so as surely as we will be delivered from our sinful bodies, so will creation. Right? Paul is making a parallel between these two things. That just as creation will be delivered, just as we will be delivered, so will creation in a similar way. In this idea of new creation. So not only will believers be glorified, new creations in Christ with resurrected bodies, but all of creation will be. And I think this is important because often people have this wrong idea of heaven. That heaven is just floating around in a sort of non-existence or a bodiless existence. That, I mean, think about heaven. What do you think of? Or the ultimate, the end of all things. What comes to your mind? For most people, it's, for most non-Christians, it's sort of being those cherubs with little wings and bow and arrows or something like that. That's hallmarky and wrong. But even as Christians, we are tempted to think of heaven as sort of this bodiless existence. But that's not what we see in the scriptures. We see that the hope for the believer is that, yes, we will die. And Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we will be separated from our bodies for a time. But when Christ comes again, we will be resurrected. That this body must put on immortality, as Paul goes on to say later, that this is the great hope of the Christian, is to be resurrected. And we see this referred to in scriptures as the new creation, that the new creation. And so it's important that we understand this because if we sort of think of heaven as this bodiless existence, we, we don't see what God has really held out for us as believers, this great hope that we have that even though our earthly bodies fail us, we have a hope that's greater than that. And we see Paul something, say something else here. If you want to look with me at verse 23, he says that not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. This phrase, the first fruits of the Spirit, is very interesting. As we've talked about already, believers have been indwelt with the Spirit. That we've been indwelt with the Spirit. That we've been given new hearts. That our heart of stone has been taken out. And we've been given a heart of flesh. And sometimes you might hear me refer to this as an act of new creation. We talked about this before. That if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's sort of interesting. (laughs) So in a sense, we can say that the new creation at the end of all time has broken into the here and now. In our hearts. That God, who's promised this new creation where all will be made new, all will be made right, by the power of the Spirit has broken into our hearts. 
We've been given this new heart with new desires and new affections. And that this, creation, this new creation has broken in. And we've seen this first in the person of Christ. What is his resurrection? His resurrection is not like Lazarus or the other resurrections that we see in the Gospels or Acts. He's resurrected with a resurrection body. And he ascends into heaven. And that's the body he will have forever. <laughs> this is totally different than Lazarus and all these other people. This is a resurrection, new creation body. And so this is the first fruits of our resurrection. That Christ has gone before us, been buried and raised and resurrected so that we might, when we are buried, be raised. If that makes any sense. So this new creation has broken in. In the power of the Spirit, we have the first fruits of it, and we groan inwardly. And then Paul ends with this in verses 24 through 25. He says, in this hope we were saved. That in this hope we were saved. For hope that is seen is no hope at all. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That this promise of the new creation... We can't see it right now. We can't see it. And this is kind of echoing a lot of things that we know about faith that are talked about in the book of Hebrews, right? What is faith? It is hope for things unseen. It's hope for things unseen. And Paul will later go on to say this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. See that pattern of suffering and glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The things that are unseen are eternal. So this is Romans 8, 18 through 25. We have a great hope before us. And so as we do each week, we try to apply this passage of Scripture, right? We try to apply it to our lives. So a couple things this morning. The first thing, that as believers, our hope is in the new creation. Our hope is in the new creation. First, the working of the Spirit internally, and finally, at the last day, when Christ will make all things new. And I say that because the world around us wants our hope to be in everything but that. The world wants our hope to be in everything but that. It wants our hope to be in this life, in our physical bodies here, in getting comforts and wealth, right? That's what the world tells us, that all these things are what give us value and purpose, and that's what our hope should be in. But what does Christ say? Store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. And this is a picture of the new creation. And so many people can try to Christianize this idea of comfort in this world. You might have heard this book title, Your Best Life Now, right? Our best life is not now. Our best life is in the world to come. And so Paul here is giving us a heavenly vision. He's saying, look to Christ who suffered and was glorified who suffered for our sins and was raised for our life. And he did this for us 
and for our salvation. He went before us. He did the things that we could not. We read this morning, he fulfilled the law. He kept it at every point. And undeservingly suffered the punishment that we deserve. So that we might be redeemed. And then he rose again in his resurrection as we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks. I think it's funny that we celebrate it on this specific day when every Sunday we should celebrate the resurrection. Right? Every Sunday should be a resurrection Sunday as Bruce talked about last week. That our hope is not ultimately in this body but in our resurrection bodies. Our hope is not ultimately in this world, but in the world to come. And this is profound because it gives us hope even amidst our suffering. Even amidst our suffering. That's why Paul is giving us this heavenly vision. He's saying the sufferings that you're facing are not comparable to the glory that's going to be revealed. And so many of us are in hard times, whether it's internally. Like the woman we prayed for this morning who just found out she has leukemia and might have years to live. She's 40-something. Or maybe some of us are dealing with miscarriages or sicknesses or loss of job or all these sufferings. And so it can be hard when we're in the midst of the darkness and the clouds of God's providence have covered the light of His face. It's hard to have hope. It's hard to trust that everything is going to work out. And Paul here is saying, Look beyond this world. Look to glory where Christ has purchased. He's already done it. And that's where we look. That's our hope. And we can see that this great work, as I've just said, is a work of the triune God. That it's Father, Son, and Spirit. Not only in the act of creation, as we talked about creating the world from nothing. Not only in the act of redemption. In planning salvation, the Son accomplishing it, the Spirit applying it, but even in new creation, that Christ has taken on a resurrection body, that the Spirit now, that was poured out at Pentecost, gives new creation life to us. I could go on some whole big spiel about the Spirit hovering in various places in Scripture and how that points to new creation. You could look at the Genesis 1 account, the Spirit hovers over the waters. I said I wasn't going to do it, but <laughs> but you look at Noah, and there's this dove. There's this dove that goes out and gets the first branch from this new creation that the waters reveal. And what do we see in the person of Christ? The Spirit hovers over the womb of Mary. Christ is this new creation. What happens at Christ's baptism? The Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. And the Father speaks and says, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. And then what happens at Pentecost? The Spirit hovers over their heads as tongues of fire, saying, this is a new creation work of God. This is a new creation work of God, and that is what believers have. We have this new creation work of God as a down payment for our, the final new creation to come. And so we can see that this is not the working of our hands. This is not something that we can bring about. We can't bring about this new creation. Only God can do it by the power of His Spirit. Not just internally, but externally. So many people try to redeem culture and redeem this fallen creation. And it's impossible. It cannot be done. It cannot be done. It must be done by God. It cannot be done by us. And so we look not to this earth, but to the new heavens and the new earth. And as it says in Hebrews 11, 
Abraham looked forward to a city whose architect and builder was God. Even Abraham knew that his home was not this earth, that it was his heavenly home. And so in a couple minutes, we're going to sing the great hymn, It Is Well. It Is Well. And that great hymn was written by someone who had just lost his wife and his kids. And the last verse starts off with, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. So may our hope be in that this morning, that Lord haste the day, right? We feel the effects of sin. We feel the suffering and we can cry out in that song, Lord haste the day. Make it come quickly. Maranatha. Because it's hard. (laughs) But God has given us a hope to sustain us through this great suffering and ultimately we look forward to glory. So as we come this morning to the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that we look forward, right? What does Christ say on the night of his crucifixion? He says, I will not drink this again until I come again. And so we await this great marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's what we're looking to each week when we do this. We are looking to the great marriage supper of the Lamb where Christ will come and make all things new. That he'll put away every sin, wipe away every tear. And as it says in Revelation 2, I'm the Alpha and Omega. And behold, I make all things new. And so we can have great hope of that this morning. So each week we partake of the Lord's Supper. We're reminded of Christ's death. That his blood was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins and that his body was broken so that ours might be spared. And so we don't do this flippantly. This should be done with reverence. And we also are reminded that the word needs to be present. (laughs) That's why we proclaim the word and then we see the word in the Lord's Supper, right? We don't just do this. We, We hear the word. We hear the gospel, what Christ has done for sinners. And then we're assured of that through this covenant sign that God's given us. And so this is a great means of grace, as you've heard me talk about before. So this morning, if you're not a believer, we ask that you don't partake. Paul has serious words for those that partake in an unworthy manner. And so if you're not a Christian, we ask that you sustain. But if you are, as we say each week, we are to come, yes, confessing our sin, aware of our sinfulness, but ultimately rejoicing in what Christ has done ultimately rejoicing that his blood has cleansed us, that death has passed over us, and we have hope outside of this world. And so we're reminded of our Lord's words. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant poured out in my blood ratifying this new covenant promise, all these promises that we've talked about. Do this in remembrance of me. And as often as you drink the bread, not drink the bread, eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And that's what we await this morning. So would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. And we also thank you for this holy ordinance, this Lord's Supper, where... We're reminded each week that your blood was spilled, 
your body was broken in the place of unworthy sinners. Help us to trust in Christ alone this morning, not in our works, not in our life here, but ultimately in the life to come, in what Christ has done in this great work of redemption and this great work of new creation that's begun in our hearts. We pray that you would set aside these common elements for your holy purposes and that you would be glorified in all that we do. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So if you want to stand, we'll come forward, form a line, take these back to your seat, and then we'll take together. So this bread that we break is a communion with the body of Christ. That we've been united to him and all his benefits and his body was broken for us. So take, eat, remember, and believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of our sins. the same way we take the cup of wine, remembering that like this red liquid, Christ's blood was spilt for the forgiveness of our sins. So take, drink, remember, and believe that Christ's blood was spilled to cover all of our sins. Amen. If you want to stand, we'll respond this morning by singing... It is well.
blessings like family and money and jobs and all these things and so we're called to respond to what God's done as an act of worship by giving a part of what we've been giving back to him not to earn anything but out of gratitude for what he's done for us so um, let's pray and we'll receive the offerings Lord we thank you for this day for this time and for all the provision that you've given us. We pray that as an act of worship now we would respond in this way, not to gain anything, but because of what you've given us, Lord. We're reminded that he who, became, who was rich became poor for our sake, so that we who are poor might be rich in Christ. Yes. Help us to remember that this morning, and would you multiply these offerings. In your name we pray.
Will you stand with me as we sing the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Receive the benediction from Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Grace and peace of our Lord as you go. Reminder, we have a members meeting, so use the restroom, get some coffee and donuts, and then we'll be back here in five.